My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with retired Lieutenant Colonel Oakland McCulloch. Oak is the author of the 2021 release, Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Were Meant to Be. Based on 40 plus years of leadership in the U.S. Army and subsequent civilian positions, Oak highlights principles that will benefit today's leaders and inspire the leaders of tomorrow. He is also a well-known speaker who gives presentations on a variety of topics, including leadership, success, military history, college prep, and you know other stuff. But uh, like during his 23-year career in the Army, uh, he held numerous leadership positions in uh, the infantry and armor branches. He assisted in disaster relief operations for Hurricane Hugo in Charleston, South Carolina, and Hurricane Andrew in South Florida. His operational deployments include Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, um, and served see uh, support operations in Bosnia as a congressional liaison officer. I mean, 23 years in the Army, especially during the time that you were in, was filled with uh, a lot of experience, some good, some bad, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm just thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you. And it, it's funny enough, you know, you're about 50 miles from me um, and we connected on LinkedIn. So, yeah, man, thank you yeah, so much. I, well, thanks for having me, Dave. It really is an honor to be here. And, and you know, I'm talking about Hurricane Hugo and Andrew, it's amazing we're in the middle of a hurricane now so it's it's one of those things here in florida <laughs> yeah yeah so just because this will air later on so right now uh it hurricane ian has made landfall uh in southwest florida and um you know right now we're unaffected so uh hopefully everybody else is faring yeah. as well so um but yeah let's uh Let's dig in. I um, I, I always like to start off by getting a, a feel for a person's background. Uh, so let's start off with where you were born and raised and, and what some of your early influences were. Yeah, Dave. Um, I, I was born in uh, Tennessee, Loudoun, Tennessee. But quickly, uh, I think by the time I was five or six, we moved, my family moved to northern Illinois. Uh, small little farm town, Kirkland, Illinois, right in between Rockford and DeKalb, about 90 miles northwest of Chicago, 23 miles from the Wisconsin border. So um, it, just a little farm town is what it was. And, you know, had 1,200 people there. Everybody knew everybody. I always tell the story. I used to walk to school and back. It was about five or six blocks. And I'd walk back and forth to school every, every morning and every afternoon. And on the way back, you know, I was just I was a typical teenage boy, got in trouble. You know, I'd, one, one day I threw a snowball at some guy's uh, screened-in door and, you know, scared the crap out of him. And by the time I got home, about three blocks, he'd already called my dad. <laughs> my dad was standing, he was standing at the door waiting for me. Really, son? 
<laughs> so it was just a really small school. I had 168 students in my school, played baseball, basketball, football. Our football team had 13 players on it. Uh, and, our, you know, so you played every minute of every game. Uh, so, yeah, just a real, real I always, I loved growing up there. I wouldn't want to live there today, but I loved growing up there. It was a great place to grow up. And I guess the early people who influenced me early were really three people. My, my father, um, who I am who I am today because of him, no doubt about it, good or bad, good and bad. Um, and then I had a history teacher, uh, Mr. Schindler, who uh, I still stay in touch with and who is why I majored in history in college, no doubt about it. He, he was a great, not only a, a very good uh, uh, teacher in, in high school, but, but he cared about people. And, and that's really, he's one of the first ones who kind of taught me how important it is to care about people. And then my basketball coach, Coach Nitzwicki, who I still stay in touch with, um, he, uh, those two kind of took, took, the, took me under their wing and kind of showed me what what it meant to be uh, a, a good person and and uh, and care for people. And so I still still remember them like very very well and thank them for what they've done, what they did for me throughout my life. So when you finished up with high school, did did you have a plan to join the <laughs> army? So I about sophomore year, I decided I wanted to. You know, I, I was captain of my sports teams. I was president of my class. I was president of student government. So I, I kind of liked this leadership thing. And, uh, and so I thought, well, I want to be a leader and I want to be a leader in the army about sophomore year. And I started working toward um, getting into the United States Military Academy. And, and, and I did get in. And interesting story there. There was a, a young lady in our class uh, who volunteered to help me with all my paperwork because, you know, then we didn't have computers <laughs> you know you had to type everything and, and she said oh I'll type everything for you and uh, and she did uh, and helped me and I always tell people I wouldn't have even gotten in if it hadn't been for her probably um and then but but it was funny because I the day I graduated I didn't see her again until la last September or last last August we had our 40th year class reunion and that's the first time I'd seen her and, uh, and, and her father owned a dairy farm and I worked on his farm all the time as a kid. And so she wasn't coming to the class reunion. So I, I went to her dad's farm where she was working and I pulled up there. And when I, I parked in the exact same place I used to park when I was a kid coming to work there. <laughs> and when I opened that door and the smell of that farm hit me, I was an 18 year old kid again. I mean, it was just amazing how smells bring you back to things like that. But I, I got into West Point, thanks to her and some other people, and uh, didn't graduate from West Point. I did two years there, played baseball there, did two years, came home, helped my dad run his business. He owned a bar at that point there in a small town, finished up in Northern Illinois University in the ROTC program, where I met my wife, who was also in the Army. She was an Army nurse for eight years, and uh, we met each other in ROTC. And then uh, came on active duty and did 23 years. I always thought I'd make a career out of it, but you never know. I mean, you know, I get people, there were people who graduated with me uh, through from Army ROTC at Emory, at, uh, uh, at Northern Illinois University. 
who said, I'm going to make a career out of it. And they got out after their minimum time. And there were people who said, I'm getting out of here as soon as I can. And they retired the same time I did. So you just never know. That's great. So tell me a little bit about uh, West Point, because I, I, I feel there's a story behind that. Well, West Point, was, I mean, it's a great institution. Um, and, you know, my son eventually graduated from there as well, uh, or he graduated from there. I did not graduate from there. But but uh, it really was that my father, he, he needed some help with the business. He um, And so I came home and I, and I went, you know, I joined the National Guard while I, during that time. I was in, in junior college. And um, so I, st I still knew I want that. Eventually, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be an officer. I just went about it a different way. Um, and, and then, so I, I joined the national guard. I was in going to college in a junior college playing ball still, and then transferred over to Northern Illinois university and went through the ROTC program. And <clears throat> your experience there at West Point, I would imagine it's a pretty intense curriculum. I mean, from it what is. I've read, you know, uh, pretty, pretty incredible. And it, it's, you know, pretty incredible just to get accepted into that institution. So uh, I would imagine you look back on the time that you were there pretty fondly. I do. And it taught me some, it, it did teach me some things. I mean, my father was pretty disciplined and I, I had a pretty disciplined life as a kid, but, but that, that still instilled even a little, little bit more discipline, you know, it, the things about, and, and it's, I do the same thing still today. I mean, when was that? that's 1981. So that was 42 years, 41 years ago that I showed up at West Point. And, you know, at West Point in your closet, you hang things in order, you know, your day-to-day -day stuff, you're a little bit more dressy than your dress uniform. I do the same thing in my closet still today, 41 years later, you know, and, and I still do a lot of the things that, that, uh, yeah, cause it all, it, it's all about discipline and it's about habits and, and, uh, and I, I argue it's about self-discipline. That's what real leaders have self-discipline, not discipline. Uh, and, uh, and, and it taught me some of those things uh, when I was at West Point. Absolutely. Just the two years I was there, it still, I, it taught me things that I still use today. Yeah. And when you compare and contrast that with your time at Northern Illinois, you know, I'm sure you learned a lot of valuable lessons there going through the ROTC program uh, because of the, the people that were leading the ROTC program. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how, how would you relate those two institutions? Yeah, well, and now it's funny because now I recruit for Army ROTC. and I ran an Army ROTC program, my last assignment on active duty, but now I recruit for one as a Department of the Army civilian. And I, and I recruit people who are trying to do both things. They're trying to go to an academy and they're trying also trying for the four-year scholarship. So if they don't get into an academy, then they'll do ROTC. And I always tell them, look, it really comes down to this because the, the academy is a great institution, and but it's not for everybody, uh, but it is a great institution. But so is ROTC. I, I tell people I will put the top ROTC graduates, not only in my school, the school that I recruit for, but across the nation, the top ROTC recruits are as good as the West Point graduates, if not better, some of them. Um, so it all comes down to lifestyle. What kind of lifestyle do you want? Do you want somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year telling you when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, what to wear, how to make your bed, when to go to class? Or do you want to go through ROTC, come out with the same second lieutenant bar, 
but you get some lifestyle choices. And that's really what it comes down to. Let's kind of dig into your career in the, in the Army. Um, you did 23 years. Uh, I mean, pretty extensive background there. Uh, you did time in infantry and armor. Um, how did that transition work? Yeah, so I was an infantry officer, loved being an infantry officer. I did my first five years at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And then uh, then I, I was a branch detail guy. So uh, they, they were going to make me go into the quartermaster corps. And I did. I went to the quartermaster advance course and I was a quartermaster officer, I don't know, for about a year. And, and I went to Fort Knox because I wanted to be an armor officer. And so I went to Fort Knox and convinced them that I would have made a good, I'd make a good armor officer. And they, they agreed for whatever reason. And they helped me make the transition from quartermaster to uh, armor officer. Um, and so that, that, and then I did uh, 17 years as an armor officer. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, it, and I, the reason I picked, decided I wanted to change from infantry to armor is I was a mech infantry guy. So I rode around on Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. And I fell in love with the speed and the firepower of that vehicle. And I thought, well, if I'm going to ride around on a vehicle, I might as well be on the, the real firepower, you know, ride around on an M1 tank. And so that's what kind of decided for me that that's what I wanted to do. That's so freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was fun. I, I loved being an armor officer. I mean, getting to fire that 120 mil millimeter cannon was pretty amazing. Now, what exactly is a quartermaster in the army? So the, so the quartermaster are the ones who do logistics supplies. So, um, you know, make sure that you got fuel, ammo, uh, food, clothing, all those repair parts, all those things that you need. So not the most exciting no, but I will tell you that, you know, I do absolutely, because I, I taught at the at the um, ordinance uh, basic course when I was a major. I taught leadership and tactics to all the brand new ordinance lieutenants. And I always told them, I said, look, um, the hardest job in the army is logistics. Yeah. Combat arms is easy. Yeah. Logistics is, is the heart. And, you know, and it goes back to Napoleon's I believe it was Napoleon said, you know, um, amateurs talk about tactics, professionals talk about logistics, because it really is that important. And it is that difficult. It really, it's, it is not an easy job. And, um, and we've got some great young men and women, and great men and women who are doing a great job with the logistics piece, because that's, you can't do anything if you don't have logistics. Sorry, eight hours after I turn my tank on, it's dry. There's no more gas. Eight hours. <laughs> So in eight hours, I need another 500 gallons of fuel. Yeah, and it's the, the same in, in the fire service. I mean, with any, every, every service. But, um, you know, without, I, I think a lot of times people in operations downplay the role that logistics we has. Do. And, you know, it, it's uh, one of my best friends. He's a logistics guy for tier one, um, well, it's a uh, type one um, NIMS teams, like the national incident management system, right? Uh, like ICS team. So he's, he deploys with uh, Miami Dade fire rescue, their uh, USAR team 
and it's uh task task force one anyways he's he's the logistics guy and i and you know i i bust his chops because you know if we can yeah but man you know it, it says something about the individual to be selected for that position because it's such a vital part of any operation it is i mean you can't do anything without logistics i mean not for very long for sure yeah. um and and so i you know I, I I've got I still got friends who uh, who stayed in that that track and who uh, you know retired lieutenant colonels and colonels and from the army and they got to do some amazing things too you know just not the the sexy things that you get to do in a tank or in a Bradley or you know infantry armor or whatever but but they got to do some amazing things you know like some of them one I one friend who got selected to go do the po uh, the um, not the MIA uh, searches in Vietnam, uh, and, they, and he actually found a couple um, service members' uh, remains there uh, during a couple of his trips. So, I mean, they got to do some some neat things too. Just things we don't hear about every day. When you when you left the army, you went into you know the the civilian world, working for corporations, but you also you touched on it about um, you know, leading the ROTC program at, at Stetson. And how, how long were you there? Yeah, so I, my last assignment on active duty, I ran the ROTC program at the University of South Alabama in Mobile. And then uh, when I retired, I was the associate director of a food bank in Mobile, Alabama for about 18 months where I ran the day-to-day -day operations of a food bank that covered 52 counties along the Gulf Coast from Mississippi to the Alabama through a little bit of the panhandle of Florida. And that was during the BP oil spill time. So we dealt with that crisis uh, on a daily basis at the food bank. Um, and then they offered me to come here to central Florida, to Deland, Florida, and as a contractor, army contractor, and run the day-to-day -day operations of the ROTC program at Stetson University, which is part of Emory-Riddle's Army ROTC program. Um, and so I did that. I did that for about 18 months. Um, see, that was January to October, the next October. So yeah, about, about 18 months, I was uh, running the day-to-day -day operations of, of the cadets there. And when I got there, and then I became the recruiting officer for the entire program, which includes Emory-Riddle, Stetson, Bethune-Cookman and Daytona State College, so four schools. And when I got to Stetson, there were 15 cadets in the program. When I became the recruiting officer, or last two years ago, we had 106 cadets in the program at Stetson. When I took over as the recruiting officer for the entire program, we had 165 cadets in the program. Two, two years ago, we started the, the year with 388 cadets in the program. And what do you what do you attribute that to? Uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of hours, uh, and making it very personal. Um, you know, I visited before the COVID thing. I was visiting about thirty six high schools and spending the entire day there talking to every class. So sometimes I give the same recruiting presentation six seven times uh, in a day. But I, you know. But, but I made it about them because it is about them. You know, I, I, tell, I tell people, look, I made my choices 100 years ago. This is about them. But I, but I made sure that they understood that 
and I, and I was always upfront and honest with them about what they were trying, what, what they were getting into. Um, and, um, and, and I made myself available. You know, I, I answered the phone till I'll, I'll answer the phone at eight o'clock at night. If, if a prospect calls and he and his parents or she and her, her parents have questions, they can call and put me on speakerphone. Um, because it, it is about them. This is one of those few times in their life when it is about them. Um, so I, I, I make sure that, that they understand that. Now, at, at what point did you decide that you were going to publish a book? Yeah, well, I wanted to write one for a number of years. And then it's funny because I just, I just had this conversation the other day with somebody. They asked me that question. And I said, you know, I was at a motivational speaking uh, event at our Catholic church. My wife, myself, her mom, and somebody, two other people in the building here that we live in. And it was at our Catholic church and it was a motivational plus they were throwing in some stuff about how do we rejuvenate the Catholic church for young people to get them back in the church. And it was about a three hour event. The guy didn't talk the entire time. You know, he talked and then we'd have music and other things going on. But every time there was a break, I'd go up and I'd talk to him and, and just kind of tell him, you know, what we just kind of ex exchanged some, some things. And I told him I wanted to eventually be a, uh, you know, do the public speaking thing. And he said, so do you have a book, Oak? And I said, no. I said, but I'm really, I'm thinking about writing one. And he looked looked at me, stopped and he looked at me and said, stop thinking about it and write it. <laughs> and so that was really kind of what, when I decided, okay. So that was the 15th of February, 2020. I came home that night and I wrote out this table of contents. I started writing the next morning on the 16th of February and I published the book on the 12th of February, 2021. Wow. Pretty cool. So what was your inspiration for it? I know you, that uh, talk kind of motivated you, but the inspiration behind it uh, and, and what you put in the book. Yeah, so I go back to when I was a professor of military science at the University of South Alabama in Mobile. I was going around talking to high school students and college students and a few businesses, but mainly high school and college students. And I would ask them, you know, I'd ask them, okay, so what do you want to do in life? What do you want to be? And they'd tell me what profession they wanted to be in. And inevitably somebody would say, well, and I want to be a leader. I say, well, great. The world needs more leaders. I said, so what does that mean? What does that take? And you get that deer in the headlights look, you know, they, they had no idea what it took to be a leader that they, they thought they wanted to be a leader and they probably wanted to be a leader for the wrong reasons because they wanted a nicer title. They wanted more privileges. They wanted better pay. And let's face it, leaders get those things and that's okay. But if that's why you want to be the leader, then go do something else because you're never going to be a good leader. So I came up with a, a presentation um, that explain what leaders do, what good leaders do, and what it takes to be a leader. Nothing about theory in the presentation or in my book. It's all about everyday things that everyday leaders have to do to be good. Um, and so I came up with that. And obviously, in, you know, in a 45-minute presentation or an hour presentation, you can't cover as much as you can in a book. And I would always tailor my presentation to different organizations. So I had about 15 things that I could talk about and, in, you know, in a 45 minute presentation, I might talk about six of them or five of them. Um, but I took all of those that I talk about and I put them into the book. Um, and so that's that's where the that's what's in the book is 
all the different variations of the presentation that I can give. I'd, I'd like to dig in to the book a little bit. Like who, who is the book primarily for? Like what, yeah. what audience did you write it for? Yeah, I, I, at least I thought I was right, right. And I think I did. If you read the reviews, I think it's got 179 reviews on Amazon. Um, if you read the reviews, most people will agree that I think I hit what I really wanted, which was the young junior leaders, either aspiring leaders or people who are leaders, but first time leaders or brand new leaders in corporations or in the military or wherever they're a leader. Because leadership is leadership. Doesn't matter where you, you learned it, doesn't matter where you practiced it. Um, so that really, that's who I was trying to, to really reach is to give them some idea what it is that's expected of them as a leader, because most people don't know. And, and I wish somebody would have kind of laid all that out for me when I was a brand new lieutenant. Um, and I've had people tell me, where was this book 30 years ago when I was a brand new lieutenant or a sergeant in the army or wherever? But then what, one of the things I've found is, is that I also hit people my age who I had a two-star general from the Marines who read it. And he, and he, we were talking on a Zoom meeting and he said, you know what, Oak, that I didn't learn a whole lot of new things from your book. He said, I may have learned a few techniques, new ways to do a couple of things. He said, but you know, I did those things and maybe I did them a little different and you've given me a different way I can do them. He said, but what I took out of your book was this. I was reading along and I'd come across a section and it would pop into my mind. You know what? I used to do that really well. And I don't do that so well anymore. Maybe I need to dedicate some time and effort to get back to doing that well again, because that's something that helped me be successful as a leader. I've just kind of forgotten it or just pushed it off to the side. And I need to do that a little bit more. And that really made me feel good that also people like me, you know, old people who've been leaders for 20, 30, 40 years can still get something out of it. And I always tell people, look, if you ever think, that you can't learn anything else about whatever subject you is important to you, then you need to go do something else because you're no good to that organization anymore. You can always learn something new. Life, leadership, whatever is a journey. It is not a destination. You don't get there and you're all of a sudden the best. You can't learn anything else. That, that place doesn't exist. And I mean, just the title of your book, you know, it re references legacy. And what is legacy to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I had somebody who kind of thought, you know, hadn't read my book, obviously, when he when he said this to me, because if he did, he wouldn't have even have thought to make this comment. But he said, you're pretty naive or pretty uh, bold if you think that that you've got a legacy uh, that, you know, it's all about your legacy. And I said, I said, obviously, you haven't read my book. I said, it's not about me. It's about the legacy. For me, legacy is who you leave behind, who you influence. Way after you're gone, who are st you still influencing and, uh, and they're influencing? Kind of like Coach Deswicki and, and Mr. Schindler, my teacher and coach in high school, they influenced me. And now I'm influencing somebody else. And after they're gone and I'm gone, the people I'm influencing, thanks to them, will influence somebody else. Because it, you know, it, it really is our responsibility. Like you said in the, in the intro, I do believe that it is this generation's responsibility to help train the next generation because that's what leaders do. They produce more leaders. And 
I, my favorite quote, and I wish I could take credit for it. It's in my book. I can't take credit for it. Master Sergeant David Powell, a guy who worked for me, I say he worked for me. He was a better leader than I was probably. Um, we were sitting there. He worked for me when I was running the ROTC program and he was my senior NCO. And, and he looked, we were sitting there talking about the importance of what we were doing, producing leaders, not only for the army, but for the country, for that next generation. And he said, you know what, boss? Great leadership handed down from generation to generation is what develops great nations. And I thought, holy cow, what a great quote. And the great part about that quote, the amazing part of that quote is you can substitute that word nations for anything you want. Company, university, high school, sports team, whatever you want, fire department. And it doesn't change the meaning of that quote one bit. Because every organization at every level needs good leadership. So that's to me what le legacy is, passing it on so that this great country continues to be great. You mentioned you laid out the, the table of contents for your book. And, and I would imagine that you, you kind of followed like an outline. The, the structure of your book, is, does it kind of develop chapter after chapter or is it different concepts each chapter i mean can you talk uh, just a little bit about you know maybe summarize yeah so, absolutely so so there is a common theme throughout all the chapters uh, there's 10 chapters um and there, the common theme is servant leadership i'm a firm believer in servant leadership you know and i had somebody tell me the other day well, oh, there's no such thing as servant leadership. If you look at the leadership mod models in theory, and I said, well, I, I don't do theory. I don't want to do theory. Theory is important. You got to learn that. But that's the average person doesn't care about theory. If, if we're talking about theory, what I really talk about is transformational leadership. But nobody knows what transformational leadership is. If you talk to the normal person, if I say servant leadership, they got an idea of what I'm talking about. So uh, so the, throughout the book, I'm talking about servant leadership. Every chapter kind of comes back to that and builds on the servant leadership thing. But then for the most part, all the rest of the chapters just are standalone. This, this is something you need to do if you want to be a good leader. One of those is communication. And I talk about communication in every form. I talk about verbal, nonverbal, written. When I talk about written, I talk about memos, letters, um, email, texts handwritten notes. Um, and I talk about listening, which is something that we don't do very well in this country, uh, probably the world, but certainly in this country, um, and how important it is. And, um, and, I, and I try to give a little story about each one of those things, about the handwritten note. I tell a story of, about how I got a young man to come here to Emory-Riddle. We were his seventh school choice, but he got a handwritten note from me and he decided he was coming here. Talk about listening, how important it is listening. I had a boss who, I was a captain and he was a lieutenant colonel. He eventually retired a lieutenant general. But I, I, I was a captain, he was a lieutenant colonel and he taught me the importance of listening. And it, it's funny because when people, so a lot of people ask me, they say, if you could go and find one, one thing that you know now that you wish you would have known when you were a, a young, young lieutenant, when you were just first starting out, what would it be? And I tell them, the importance of listening, the power of listening. I wish I would have known that as a lieutenant instead of as a senior captain. Yeah. 
Um, but, and then I talk about team building. I talk about coming up with a vision and a plan about building a culture. I talk about training your team. Um, uh, so all those kinds of things that are kind of standalone, getting results um, that you have to be able to do as a leader. But the common theme throughout it is servant leadership, taking care of the people in your organization and taking care of your org organization above your own self. Are you familiar with the uh, grand strategy program at Yale? No, I'm not. So there's, uh, I, I came across it a few years back and I, and I thought it was pretty incredible. And, you know, what they, they bring in uh, young leaders from the military. Some are uh, probably going to lead, you know, large corporations, but they're, they're individuals that may, I mean, they may serve in, in the government. Right. Um, but they do uh, allow, I think there's a certain number of seats that they give to uh, different branches of the military for you sure. know, young officers to come. And it's, uh, I want to say it's like a year long program. And, uh, and I just happened upon it because um, I, I started getting interested in, in strategy. And uh, when they, um, when they first start, they dig into you know, the classic uh, strategy texts, you know, like uh, um, on war or uh, what is it? <clears throat> the, the one by Lao Tzu, uh, The Art of War, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Machiavelli, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Prince, um, you know, history of the Peloponnesian War, the right, you know, all these things, they, they, read these texts and they digest them and they glean uh, certain wisdom from both mistakes made and lessons learned, you know, and, and the things that went right. Right. Um, and by, I guess the idea is to help people help these individuals learn to think critically when under pressure and be able to utilize wisdom that is, you know, timeless. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would imagine that, you know, there's, there's uh, probably part of the curriculum uh, at, at West Point, you know, you got to study strategy. Um, and, and I know for a fact that in the, there's required reading at West Point and uh, some of it Man, is general staff college and a bunch of other places I went. Yeah. Um, so what I'm, the question I'm trying to formulate this question uh, appropriately, like how, uh, well, what role did strategy play in your position as an officer in armor? Um, you know, I always thought that that would be like an incredible position. It, it's really interesting. Um, Just thinking about these these grand strategies, uh, but th thinking about them militarily, and right. uh, what you're trying to accomplish, you know, it's scaled throughout the operation. And uh, well, first, do you talk about strategy in in your book? So I talk about. Um... 
I, I don't I don't know that I ever use the word strategy. I talk about uh, I talk about how to do things strategic, you know, a vision, a plan, a five-year, 10-year vision and plan, uh, building culture, which you hope goes over a long period of time. I may have used the word strategy, I can't remember, but but it's certainly that is the strategy that I'm talking about in my book is the building of that team and that vision and that plan and the culture and how important that is. And it really is that important. I mean, building the culture of the organization is the first thing you got to do in strategic planning and strategic thought. Because I, I always use this, I say, the three things that a, a, a leader must do for his organization at, at the higher level, certainly, is come up with the vision and the plan and the culture. The vision is where you want to be five, 10, 15 years from now. The plans, how you're going to get there on a daily basis. And the culture is the, the person you are, the organization. It's what the organization is on those daily basis. It's that value that you want, the, the values that you want your company uh, or organization to espouse during your, you know, to be known for, to be known about. So they, they really are intertwined. And I was talking to a, a young man, 30 years old, young for me. Uh, I, I don't know, but probably about uh, five or six months ago, I was talking to him and he, he was a young businessman and his business was growing. And I was talking about culture and asking him, so what are you doing to invest in culture? I said, cause you know, it takes time and effort and training and a lot of money and, you know, just all those things to build a culture. And he looked at me, he said, Colonel McCullough, you're wrong. And I said, what? He said, you're wrong. I, I don't have to do any of that stuff. All I got to do is hire the right people. I said, good, good luck with that young man. Let me know how that works out for you. Cause you'll get a culture. It isn't going to be the culture you want, but it'll be, you'll get a culture. It, it doesn't work that way. You have to invest the time and, and effort. And that's the st strategy part. That's the strategic part of being a leader is thinking out that long, like you said, in scale. The day-to-day -day stuff, a good leader delegates a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff so that you can be thinking about the strategic stuff, the things that are coming down the road so that you're gonna be in, in front of changes that are coming so that you're dictating the change instead of managing change. That's what a senior leader, the strategic part of being a, a leader is about. The day-to-day -day stuff, you can have your day-to-day -day experts do that. The people who have been doing it for years and years and years. Like I, I use this example, my father's best friend when I was growing up, he worked in the Chrysler Motor Plant in Belvedere, Illinois for 38 years. For 38 years, he put the fender on whatever vehicle was being built on that plant, in that plant. So if you were a, a leader and you were having problems with fenders, who would you go talk to? I hope you would go talk to that man. You probably, if you were a good leader, you wouldn't even have a problem because you would have relied on him to make those decisions that need to be done on a daily basis to do his job because he's the guy who knows how to do it. So why would you tell him otherwise? Let him, give him the mission, give him what you want him to do, give him the resources and the authority to make it happen and let it happen. When, when you were an officer in armor, 
at some point, I'm sure you were charged with developing a, a battle strategy or something, you know, leading people. Yeah, I was the operations officer, so I used to have to write the operations orders for the day-to-day -day battles and everything else that we were doing, either simulated or the day-to-day -day operations in Kosovo when I was there. And, and when you're developing that plan, is there a, like kind of a scripted process that you would follow? Yeah, well, there is certainly a format so that, you know, anybody can join any organization in the Army and the format is is the same. So, you know, if, if you are a brand, a, a captain in, in the 82nd, but yet you come to, you know, 101st, the op order process is exactly the same throughout the Army. Now, you can have little chain, little pieces that you add or subtract, but the actual format is the same. Like, I'll give you an example. When we were in Kosovo, instead of writing a writing it all out in a five-paragraph order that would have been, you know, 40 pages long every week, we we tried to do a map, uh, a matrix, map and matrix order, so that when you're riding around on your Humvee, instead of having to thumb through and find written stuff, you had your map acetated to the top of your vehicle, and you could find the, the things that you had to do and the, and the important information. It's still the same, we covered the five paragraph thing, we just did it in a different different method. Um, we could do that in that type of, in a peacekeeping operation. It, it's a little harder in a, you know, in a war type situation, you, you probably have to do the five paragraph op order written out, but in the peacekeeping operation, we could get away with that. So yeah, there is a certain format, but there is some leeway for you to, to do some things of your own, as long as you don't deviate from the things you got to cover. I don't know. I'm, I'm like thinking about how that translates, that experience translates, because I would imagine how you've written your book, you know, you talk about legacy. I mean, that's really the end state that you're looking for. I mean, you're not even going to be around, but you're setting the stage for your legacy to live on after you. Absolutely. That's, that's, to me, that's what it's about. Uh, you know, at this point in my life, especially, I mean, it, my passion is to talk to as many young men and women as I can about leadership and talk to anybody, but certainly young men and women, because they are the future. And, and if we don't, as we as leaders today, you and I and the rest of us, this generation, if we're not, if we aren't training the next generation, we're going to get what we sow and we deserve what we get. Um, it really is our responsibility to do it. And part of that is being a mentor. Um, and I talk about that in the book and I talk about it in my presentation, how important it is to be a mentor to somebody. And it's, and, and it really is funny to me. I'll walk up to somebody who claims to be a leader and I say, so who are you mentoring? And they'll say, well, I don't mentor anybody. I said, then you're not a leader. You're a boss at best. You're not a leader because leaders produce more leaders. And the way you produce more leaders is you mentor them. You teach them the way, some some good things, not the way, but a way that works. Because something that works for me may not work for you, Dave, and what works for you may not work for me. But there are different ways to get to get to where we want to be. Our job as this generation is just to teach them some ways to get there, so they're not starting from scratch. Just kind of piecing things together as as we're talking and how applicable it is i mean you know your time in the army really when when you're developing 
a, a strategy, a combat strategy, or, you know, you're going to fill in some key people as to what your strategy is so that if, you know, the enemy takes you out, they'll be able to continue yeah. on. Yeah. Well, and, that's all part of leadership is to have, start training the person who's going to replace you. You know, in, in the army, we always say you, you want to train two levels down. So you start training people two levels down to be able to step up and do the things that you're doing. Uh, Cause none of certainly in the army, but everywhere. I mean, if we don't believe that, then it, we're naive. Nobody is, is indispensable. Everybody can be replaced. Um, you know, I, none of us are perfect. None of us, uh, are, are so good that nobody could step up and do the job we're doing. might take them a little while to learn the things, but everybody is, is replaceable. So what is, what is the end state for you? Uh, you know, aside from your legacy, what's, what's the end state for you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had somebody ask me the other day, they said, you know, Oak, you're going to be 60 in January. Why don't you just go fishing? Just hang it all up and go fishing. I said, I said, Virgil, that's not in me. I said, I, I don't, I don't know that I could ever just completely retire. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, but, but it really is to me that my end state is as long as I can. And as long as people want to hear to get out and talk to people and uh, pass on the things that I've learned and, and, and be that mentor for people. You know, I, over the years through either running the ROTC program or working in the ROTC program for the last 11 years, I've been involved in the commissioning of probably, I'd say probably 300 lieutenants. Some of them now are majors in the United States Army. Um, and they still, every once in a while, one of them will give me a call or shoot me an email and say, hey, sir, I I'm going through this. What's your advice? Or I've got a choice between these two jobs on my next assignment. What's your, what's your recommendation? Um, and, you know, cause, cause I, I still am mentoring them, not on a daily day basis anymore or, but when they want it and when they need it, I, I'm happy to be there to help. So I think just continue to be a mentor, um, continue to, to train and teach and guide as many young men and women as I can into at least the first part of their career as a, as a leader. And then, and then at some point, let them do that same thing. Again, that's the legacy. Then they're doing the same thing down the road after I'm gone and they're influencing the next generation of leaders. And what is something that you are focused on learning, something new that you're focused on learning? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm always anxious to to learn. I, I read books. You know, I, I, you know, I've been doing this leadership thing for 40 years. I still read leadership books, and I still pick things up that I can do and I can use. Um, I think you know one of the things that for me, because I've been speaking for a long time, but again, you know, if you ever think you you can't learn anything new, then you gotta you gotta hang it up and do something else. I was at a conference last week in Vermont, and there were three keynote speakers. I was one of them, uh, but there were two ladies and one of the ladies uh, was doing a, a keynote, doing her keynote. And, you know, I, I, one of the things I advocate is keeping a leadership journal where when you go to a, a presentation, 
you write down key things that you learn that you want to remember. Or when you're reading a book, you write down the key things that, that you learned out of that book or great quotes that you, that you come across or decisions that you've made. And I still do that still today. When I'm sitting there, this lady was doing her keynote um, speech and her, her name is uh, uh, Rachel Dr Druckenmiller, a uh, great public speaker. Um, and I had my paper out and I'm writing notes. Uh, I, she gave me a couple things, you know, how to involve the audience a little bit better than I do. Um, and, and I was taking notes on how to, how she did it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to get better as a speaker, as good as you are, you can always get better. And I want to get better because, because that's how I'm getting my message across that in my book, but hopefully at some point I'm getting more, getting uh, my message out more by speaking than I am by the book. And it, the better you are, the better your message is going to come across and the more people you're going to influence. So I'm always trying to figure out how to be a better speaker. I, you know, so in this conversation, there, there's things that I'm taking away, but I, I want to highlight a few things for the people listening, because it, you're like the, you know, dictionary uh, definition of uh, a leader you know you well i appreciate that <laughs> and well i mean you you've set the stage for an incredible legacy and it's and it's not just you know you're not just uh hanging your laurels on your your time in the army day after day you're doing things and you know i'm asking questions to go you know the things that I know about leadership, I feel like these are represented in him. Let me ask a question to verify. And it's like, yeah, you're, uh, I mean, you walk the walk, you, you set the example and you are continuing to mentor and add value to other people. And your book is part of your legacy. I mean, that, you know, long after you're gone, it's going to be hanging around. And, um, and so for those listening that are, are new leaders or aspiring to be, uh, a leader, an effective leader, all these things that we're talking about, you know, that transformational leadership, uh, transformational leadership, uh, servant leadership. One of the things that I talk about is uh, selfish altruism. It's that, and you said it just uh, in a different way where you have to have that self-discipline to work really hard at adding value to yourself so that you are better able to add value to the people that you're leading. Yeah, it's all about passing it on. And if you don't get good at what you're doing, then how, how are you going to pass on what you know to somebody else? Because it, 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 it isn't, you know, it isn't all, it is not about you. And one of the things I always say is, you know, servant leadership is it's not about you and it's all about you. And people say, well, Colonel McCullough, how can it be not about me and then all about me? And I said, well, it's not about you and the, the title you get or money or privileges or any of that, but it's all about you and how you treat people in your organization and run your organization, because that's really what it's all about as a leader is helping other people become the best they can be. And in the end, you're going to get what you want. You're going to get your nicer title. You're going to get your better pay. You're going to get rewarded because your organization is going to do well because your people are doing well. So you get it, but you get it for the right reasons, not for selfish reasons. You get it because you've helped the people in your organization become better 
which then the organization becomes better and you get the recognition that you you deserve if, if your organization is doing well. Because believe me, if your organization isn't doing well, you're the one that's getting the blame. So, you know, your name is always, your, I always tell people, your, your name is always on the blame line. Either you're going to get good recognition because your organization is doing well, or you're going to get blamed for it. And you should. If your organization isn't doing well, you should be the one to blame because a leader is responsible for everything that does or does not happen in his or her organization. You got to own everything. You got to own everything in your organization. It's yours. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that, that we were able to have this conversation and, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Uh, and, and for those listening that want to get your book uh, or connect with you, I, I know um, you're on LinkedIn. Uh, I mean, you've got all your social media links on your, um, your website, uh, or maybe it was on your LinkedIn page. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I got a YouTube channel. It's got a, a bunch of video clips of, from my presentations. Um, but I also have my website, um, that you can go to that has my cell phone number, my email, if you want to get in touch with me, um, either just to talk or to set up a podcast or a speaking engagement. Or if you want to buy some signed books, I, I, you know, I, I just signed nine, 10 of them yesterday that going out, that's going to somebody who wanted to get 10 of them to hand out to junior leaders in their organization. Um, so yeah, easy to get a hold of. And I would love to talk to to whoever wants to i never turned out a chance to talk to somebody thank you so much sir for for taking the time with me today and um and and for those listening that want to connect with with oak i will have links in the show notes um definitely go out get his book connect with him follow him uh he's doing some pretty incredible things and you can learn so much just by reading what he's written. So uh, please go check it out. And thank you again, sir. I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.